Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, happy winter solstice to all of you out there. Or as uh, Steve from South Africa pointed out, it may be the summer solstice for those of you in the southern hemisphere of this lovely little planet. Just six more of these solstice celebrations before uh, 2012 gets here. And what are you going to be doing on the December solstice of 2012? More importantly, what do you think you'll be doing on the solstice in 2013 and beyond? Well, that's just too far ahead for me to be thinking right now, because if I don't focus on the here and now, we aren't going to get to the next tape in the Trilogue series. You might remember that in the last program I mentioned the fact that these conversations build on one another, and that if you haven't heard the preceding part of a Trilogue, you might not understand all of the references being made. So, with that thought in mind, I want to play a, <laughs> a brief little soundbite of Terrence McKenna from the previous podcast. And, and that involves, uh, you know, opening our lives to chaos in whatever way, becoming much more a part of the will of the world soul than, uh, and, you know, recapturing that Greek sense of fate that has been replaced in our minds by this Faustian sense that is an illusion of control and dominance. And now, to do my part in shattering the illusion of control and dominance, I'm going to do what I can to inject a little more chaos into the psychedelic salon. Unintentionally, I might add, as you know, for uh, four weeks or so now, I've been putting out three podcasts a week, two of them being part of the Trialogue series with Terrence McKenna, Ralph Abraham, and Rupert Sheldrake, and the other program each week coming from other sources. The program I started to put together for today was to have included two of this year's Burning Man talks, one by Mark Pesci and the other by Amanda Fielding. And uh, while the talks are ready to go, I haven't yet received an okay from Amanda, so I decided to skip that program for now and get the next trialogue tape out. Now, if you heard my last podcast, you might want to remember me saying that the title of the next tape in the trialogue series is The World, Soul, and the Mushroom. I think you'll probably be able to imagine my disappointment in not finding that tape, because my disappointment is probably on the same order as your disappointment might be right now, as it slowly dawns on you that this long introduction is my way of saying I screwed up. Apparently, when I was digitizing all of these tapes, the mushroom tape came up during one of the all-night sessions when I was getting up every 90 minutes or so to change tapes. And guess what? I apparently recorded the third tape in the series twice, <laughs> but I labeled the second copy as Tape 4. So I'm afraid that the mysterious mushroom tape is going to have to wait until I can mount another expedition to Santa Cruz where I can borrow it again from Ralph Abraham and get it into MP3 format for a podcast. 
So I've decided to mask my disappointment at not being able to hear the trialogue about the world, soul, and the mushroom by being thankful for this wonderful solstice gift from the goddess of chaos. I'm sure that she's held back the mushroom tape from us until the end of the trialogue series when we'll be better prepared to grok its wisdom. So how's that for putting a pretty face on my screw-up, huh? <laughs> Anyway, let's get on with today's program, which is from the fifth tape in a series of ten that were made in the Septembers of 1989 and 1990 at Esalen, where Terence McKenna, Ralph Abraham, and Rupert Sheldrake got together and held a trialogue on the topic of light and vision. And we begin with Rupert Sheldrake setting out a few of his thoughts about light. I've been thinking a lot about light. One of the problems that I've been thinking about is the connection between physical light, the kind we study in physics, um, and light used in a whole host of other senses, like the light of consciousness, the light of reason, the light of understanding, um, and or the light of God. And it seems to me that if these two kinds of, that these two kinds of light, it's not that one's physical and the other's just kind of metaphorical, but that in, a, in, one, in some sense they must be aspects of each other, they must be talking about the same thing, of which we're seeing different aspects. So this suggests there's some relationship between light and understanding, or light and vision. And then, of course, we realize there is a connection between light and vision. Light is the medium of vision, vision not just in the visionary sense, but in the sense of ordinary visual perception. So then, if one thinks about ordinary visual perception and thinks, well, how much do we understand about the nature of vision? What is vision? What is seeing, of which light is the medium? Then we find that science doesn't really tell us very much. What it tells us is that light moves from the thing we see, goes through the eye, inverted image on the retina, patterns of uh, electrical and chemical activity in the optic ganglia and nerves and in the cerebral cortex. And then somehow what we're seeing seems, has, seems to spring up in a totally unexplained way as in a subjective image of what we see somewhere inside the brain. And we then falsely imagine, according to the standard theory, that this image inside the brain, subjectively experienced we know not how, is then projected outwards until uh, it appears to be in the place where the thing seen is. So if I'm looking at you, Terence, the, the light rays come into my eye I, and then I have a subjective image of you which is actually just my understanding or my subjective awareness of an electrochemical pattern in my optical cortex. That gives me somewhere in the brain a subjective image of you which I experience subjectively and imagine is where you are, but actually it's inside the brain. That's the standard theory. And it seems to me an extremely peculiar theory of vision because it has a one-way movement of light into the body. It has things going on inside the brain. And then the, the visual world we experience is imagined to be located inside the brain and not around us where it seems to be. So what I've been considering is the idea that when the light comes in, uh, the visual image is a mental image. Uh, it's definitely a mental and subjective image. My image of you is interpreted by me. It's a mental construct. But I think this mental construct may not be inside the brain, but right where you are. 
namely outside me. And this is an idea which is developed with great clarity by Bergson, who gives in Matter and Memory, who gives the, idea, the, the notion that what we see, our perceptual world, uh, is all around us. And the idea that it's inside the brain corresponds not at all with our actual experience. It's just a theory. It's a theory of remarkable uh, hallucinatory power because uh, we forget it's a theory quite quickly. Anyway, so if there's an outward projection of images as well as an inward movement of light in the process of vision, then if this outward projection has anything to it, if I'm not just talk, playing with words, producing a different metaphor, there must be something moving out, some influence moving out, as well as the light moving in. And if so, it, people or things might be affected just by being looked at, if some influence is going out from the eyes, as well as an influence coming in. Now, at this stage, we recognize that the idea that things go out from the eyes as well as come in is a very old and traditional view of vision. It was present among the pre-Socratics. It's present uh, in an implicit form all over the world in the fear and practices associated with the evil eye, which is supposed to be the outward movement of influences from the eye to the thing or person looked at. And we find there's also an enormous folklore in our own culture, known to everybody, um, about the phenomenon of the sense of being stared at, the feeling that people have when they think they're being looked at, for example, from behind, and turn around and indeed someone's looking at them. There seems to be an influence of the eyes that is actually detected by people. And 95% of a normal population in England, according to a recent survey, have actually directly experienced this. It's very common. Now, there's not been much empirical research on the sense of being stared at. Three published papers in a hundred years. And it's a subject that parapsychologists have ignored, as well as psychologists. And it's, I think, oddly enough, the biggest blind spot in our whole view of the world because I think it holds the key to moving to an entirely new paradigm, an entirely new understanding of um, the relation between mind and matter or spirit and body. Um, I've been doing experiments to test for the sense of being stared at. Um, most people aren't very good at it under sort of initial conditions. The only way is to do long series of experiments where people train the ability to do it under the artificial condition of experiments. But let's assume for the purpose of discussion that it can be established empirically that there is such a thing as the sense of being stared at. I mean, that's an empirically investigatable point. Assuming that there is some influence passing out of the eyes, uh, which can be detected empirically in the sense of being stared at, then what kind of influence could this possibly be? What kind of influence could be moving outwards through the eyes uh, as part of the image-forming uh, perceptive process? And in this outward projection, in some sense, projects the image we see, or the image we see is part of this outward flux, or um, this movement outwards, the opposite direction to the incoming light. Now, there's two possibilities for explaining such an outward movement. One of them is that this outward movement is in a kind of mental field, let's say, which I'd think of as a morphic field, which is somehow over and above the electromagnetic field and has nothing much to do with it except for the fact the electromagnetic field sets up all the normally understood electrochemical changes in the brain and then somehow an organizing or morphic field organizes and meshes in and relates to that field but is not itself part of it and then projects out the image. 
That's one possibility. The other possibility, a more economical one, is that the outward projection process takes place by a reverse movement along the photons of light which are coming in. In other words, that when the photon comes in, it corresponds to an antiparticle moving out, a kind of opposite of a photon moving out, um, and that these outward moving influences that move along the exact track of the photons are associated with vision, perception, comprehension, subjective experience of an object, that they're, as it were, the, the grokking, the grok wave, if you like, or the outward moving... Is bo- somehow this vision is born on the reverse movement of photons. Since, since chem- physically speaking, um, from the point of view of a photon, no time elapses as it travels. The connection between the source from which it leaves, the reflection from my skin, and, and the place where it arrives, namely a, a rod or a, a cone cell in your retina, um, that there's no time taken, and therefore the contact is, from the point of view of the photon, instantaneous between the source and the sink. But an instantaneous connection, if there were a reverse flow of action, could mean that there'd be this kind of instantaneous grokking, as it were, and, and that, the, that the two would be connected together. And just one is the subject, the other is the object, as it were. But the, um, through this connection together, there's this reverse flow between them. And so vision may be very closely related to light. Vision may... It would be too crude to say that the antiparticle of the photon is the vision. Um, but um, there may be the missing link here between uh, vision and light uh, may simply be that the photon is in some sense reversible and that the electromagnetic field is in some sense the field of vision as well. So that was what I, one of the lines I've been thinking about and, because it has further implications. But, uh, so I just wanted to see what you thought about it. Well, there are a number of questions to be asked here. I, I noticed you were careful to say that it was n- that the vision was not simply the antiparticle of the photon, because, and I imagine this was because you anticipated the objection that if it were simply the antiparticle of the photon, then the phenomenon of light pressure should not exist, and it is, in fact does exist and is well studied, because the vision would cancel out the impelling force of the forward-moving photon, and so solar sails and things like that would not work. Or could be polarized no, differently. No, this is, this is no problem at all. The, uh, we can allow that the photon is a, a, a particle with physical properties in the physical realm, and therefore exerts a physical pressure. Now, if the vision is some, some, in some sense to do with the conscious properties, or, or properties of, let's say properties of understanding, um, that's moving in the opposite direction, setting up a wave in the opposite direction, and the sense of being stared at, for example, would be sensing that wave impinging. Right. As it were, there'd be a kind of pressure in that direction of the psychic kind. Well, I think then a more elegant description of what you're trying to say is not to call the vision a particle which accompanies the photon, but to call this reverse wave phenomenon a quality of the photon itself. 
as you point out, from the point of view of the photon, the travel time to and from its destination is zero. Likewise, travel time from destination back to origin is zero. Mm. So why not simply take a page from uh, super string theory and visualize the photon as a kind of uh, uh, a particle which is stretched in one dimension and is both co-present at its origin and its destination simultaneously and thus able to impart information at a distance by that uh, means. You see, if you don't do that, if you if you say that the vision accompanies the photon but is not an anti-photon, then you've violated a major symmetry in the edifice of physics because the question can then be asked, well, what about every other particle? Does it have a ghost particle which is not its simple anti-particle but which partakes of some of its properties but not others? And I think you'd unleash a lot of messy speculation at that point. So I'd prefer well, a more complex It might not be photon. so messy. It might not be so messy. You see, because the antiparticles of most other particles are antimatter. And antimatter, in some sense, doesn't exist. Well, in what sense? Well, first of all, that the universe is not symmetrical. If the universe had mostly its same amount of matter and antimatter, they would self-annihilate and we wouldn't be here. We're only here because there was, a princ there was an enormous change in symmetry between matter and antimatter so that matter is predominant in our universe for a start at least in this part of all yes all right <coughs> but then in this part of the universe you see there's a tremendous asymmetry between the two and antimatter has a symmetrical relationship to matter in our mathematical imaginations uh -huh. but it doesn't in physical reality as we know it as that's we know true. it that's true so i would have thought that to follow this if one did want to see. You see, I'm not so wedded to particle theories of... Let's say that light moving in one direction, which already has pattern, quality, etc., is associated with vision moving in the other. To put it in the most general terms, we needn't bring in the photons necessarily, but we, we see still that there's the thing that moves in the other direction is in some senses its opposite, but in other senses is different, because mm -hmm. it doesn't have as physical a reality as the light does. And that's exactly the same is true of the antimatter which is supposed by symmetry considerations to be, at least originally, equal and opposite to matter. Yes, I see what you're saying. Ralph, how do you take to this? This discussion is very hypothetical. In fact, as hypotheses go, this is the big bag full. Certainly, if, uh, if there was no, if there was established that there was no effect could be produced in a person by looking at them from behind and so on, then this discussion is less interesting, although there still remain some serious outstanding questions about the M fields, about morphogenesis and the relation of mind and matter, the nature of vision and light. These and still remain questions. They still remain questions. Nevertheless, it does seem um, very useful and correct to make this assumption that such effect had been established. Mm. Um, but this assumption then puts us at some time in the future, supposing that some time in the past and so on. In that case, the science um, that we'd be using to, to carry on this discussion would be a different one than we've got now, and that's a further speculation that we're making. 
for example, if uh, such thing were established, then that would be the first of all the various so-called paranormal phenomena of recent decades in science um, to be validated and accepted. Exactly, that's why I think it's so important. Me too. Uh, but probably that means that uh, a lot of paradigms would be shifted, and therefore we would also be seeking explanation of telepathy and other kind of things that have to do with vision at a distance, remote seeing, clairvoyance. Second sight, is it? Yes, I don't think it would automatically follow if this effect were established that people would think it had anything to do with eyes or light at all. People or would just say, mind. yes, you've established that attention can be felt across space. And this is an establishment of telepathy. It isn't the fact that I'm looking at the back of their head, it's that I'm focusing my attention. And you know, it's most effective when you really bore in. Well, carry on output of the optical system is not increasing. Output of the mental act of concentration is what is increasing. I just wanted to get to the end of this sentence. Go for that, it. Uh, <laughs> um, if we ag agree then in the implication of this hypothesis that uh, science has been stood on its head, as it were, by the discovery of one paranormal thing, so all of them are fair game. We have to assume that field theory and so on would have expanded considerably so that um, various proposed mathematical models for the end field and so on would abound. And um, therefore, when we come to the uh, your argument in favor of Model 2 over Model 1 on grounds of economy, I don't think that would be effective. So therefore, I'm, um, I'm posing this question to think about why isn't Model 1 actually more interesting, where we would uh, think of the return influence uh, from, the, from the receiver to the sender to be um, carried in possibly a different field for which any model would be for game, fair game. I don't really see the uh, the sense of uh, identifying the, let, let's say we have an experimental result that in laboratory people can uh, get someone's attention from behind by, by looking, by boring in as Terence says. Would it really be uh, useful to propose the electromagnetic field as in any way an intermediary for that influence? Or would we rather just have another field that would be a conceptual model for the observed phenomenon, including its variation of force with distance and, and so on, trying to measure the speed of light, as it were, if it were measurable, within that field, and see if there was any comparison and so on? Yes, yes. Well, I think that this question is actually empirically testable. And I'll tell you how. Um, it's just occurred to me that one of the ways I'd thought of testing for the sense of being stared at is first train people to get sensitive subjects, you know, so you can, people can do it fairly reliably. Then try the effect of distance, staring through binoculars and so forth. Then doing it over closed-circuit TV, different rooms of the same house. Can they tell when they're being looked at through the TV? And if that works, real TV, you know, People, do people, when they're seen live on the air by millions of people, feel any different from people being with a blank camera at them where nobody's looking at them? Is there any different? Broadcasters say they can tell a big difference when it's live. And maybe they, it's just imagination, but um, just imagination. But whatever the, the reason for it is, that if one could find that this worked over TV, that people in a studio could tell when people thousands of miles away 
were looking at them, you know, satellite and stuff. The, if it were going through a reverse circuit, it would then have to go through electrons through the TV screen, back through the wires of the TV set, out through the aerial, uh, then through the electromagnetic field, uh, and then back through other electronic apparatus to sort of vibrations of things inside um, um, video cameras. Um, so I think that would be rather... A, uh, the field hypothesis in that case would be more economical. But then one could test out the... Um, the, the time, the rate of movement of that field, because if one, one could insert a time delay into the TV transmission, for example, two minutes or something, and then tell the person, ask the person to say when they felt the thing hit them. I mean, it would be a very crude measure of this, but it could tell one whether um, it was moving at the speed of light or, or at least anything roughly like that, or whether it took much longer or what. I think the... Uh, the stack of hierarchical hypotheses here is sufficiently thick to call this more or less fiction. And uh, let's uh, take an, uh, an audience survey. Terence, do you think that it's more or less economical <coughs> to assume that this kind of influence is carried in um, a new or more or less fictitious M field devoted to, invented to model this phenomenon alone, or to try to cram it into the electrical wire? Uh, I think I'd have to go for a new field. Me too. And furthermore, the idea of identifying this field while thinking of this phenomenon as mental. I mean, this. I think we're here's the bottom line. Um, since ancient times, we have thought of the mental, physical, and spiritual phenomenon as operating in different planes. And I think that these uh, planes used as used metaphorically by the ancients and the rishis of India and all the other mystical cultures are more or less what we're calling fields. And so they can find it useful to separate these fields. So if we get a physical perception, whatever that word means, I'm not sure, is it the same as reception? Mm. We get, uh, anyway, some photons, and then we get a mental picture, or we get a brain picture, we get a visual cortex picture, and then somehow this is by resonance becomes a mental picture in the in the mind and so on, then that has suggested a resonance between these two planes, um, an object as it were in the physical and an object as it were in the mental. Now the electromagnetic field is physical, at least I think of it as physical, although physicists might think of several parallel planes where there are different fields operating like the strong force and the weak force and so on, the gravitational field, but thinking of all of that as uh, collectively as the, the physical field. And I like, this is prejudice, I like the, the idea of the separate mental field. I like the I, idea that you had mentioned before, of the, the mind somehow follows the eye out and extends itself so as to actually engulf the, the object, so mm -hmm. uh, as it were, to, to know it um, through an intimate touch that Cognition could be a kind of engulfing, like paramecium eats the food. Hmm. That the uh, this motion then is is visualized in the mental plane, and therefore belongs to a different field. Now we're not inquiring as to the ex actual structure, the true structure of the phenomenal mental and spiritual universe. Only what kind of models are useful to us, and economy is not the only consideration. So coming from a deep habit, an old runnel, 
of thought with uh, mental and physical being separate fields. I guess I'm feeling a, a bias toward that view. On the other hand, if, if you could show that the, uh, the, the, this telepathy or whatever it is, the transmission of an influence from one person to, to another could be modulated electromagnetically, by holding a magnet here that would strengthen them, then, then uh, that would strengthen the idea of the association, the actual proximity of the two separate planes, mm-hmm. without even then suggesting to identify them. Yes, well, I, I mean, there's a, there's a part of me, you see, that thinks the, the separate field idea is more attractive. I, I, but I've been leaning over backwards to try and see whether, um, instead of introducing separate fields, one can come to a new understanding of the electromagnetic field and, and uh, that, that the connection between vision and light um, may be a very, very close one. And so that even if there is this other field involved which moves out and engulfs it, this other field may be in intimate resonance with the electromagnetic field as it may be in the brain. I mean, th- there's no doubt that the changes in the nerves are largely electromagnetic patterns. And there's, there's scope for resonance there. But the light that's coming to our eyes is, not, is a complex. The fact I can see you, all that complexity is in the light that's coming to my eyes. And if, if this thing is resonating with the whole field of vibration, then indeed it will connect me through the light because the field of vibration is between us in the light, and it was, comes from you and comes to me. And... Um, so anything that resonated with the light that's in between us would indeed directly connect us, as it were, via the light. Well, I have trouble with this um, the particle view. I'm more comfortable with the wave metaphor. And right. since the experts assure us that they're more or less equivalent, uh, let's just think of waves. And here I am looking at these waves on, on the ocean, and I, I see that there's a, there's a rock out there, and as the waves pass the, the rock, they, uh, they're shape is, is, is changed and somehow there is a hologram of, of the rock is then is the wave that comes forward it crashes mm-hmm. on the beach and then there's a reflected wave that goes back and I think that the electromagnetic field as theoretical physicists or something view it anyway is, is something very very like that it uh, has a mathematical model which is a wave equation and the speed of light and the waves and you see the ripples going along and so on then uh, this does seem a suitable medium for influence to go both ways. But somehow I don't see it as having a rich enough structure to model all of mental processes. Oh, I'm not that's suggesting that's all mental processes. I'm only modeling vision on this so far. Yes, so uh, to see that the visual part of the mental field as, as part of the the M field, mind field, the mind, uh, the visual part is maybe just a very thin slice, which is somehow in very intimate contact and close resonance with the electromagnetic field. Is that that must be right? But uh, to to identify them for sending influences around between people, I think, is very limiting. But it would be somehow better to carry on the the conversation about the model of the phenomenon after seeing the phenomenon and the result of actually these experiments with the video and so on. Well, yes, except that, you know, one doesn't have to wait 
for empirical results to discuss the possibilities. And the reason why it's not worth, why I think it's a bad strategy to wait for empirical data is that if one thinks through this phenomenon, if one thinks it through, um, one can derive perhaps other experiments which are simpler and easier to do um, and which could, might even correspond to existing data. You know, so it's a question of this. It's the... Hmm, Terence said, what was it you said about, uh, this is your definition of progress, uh, things progress toward a higher level of integration or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. So the urgent desire of Einstein and other physicists for a unified field theory is an expression of this universal urge for progress. And here we have uh, Rupert, I think, lusting after this unification that I think is, a re- maybe this is a really good idea if we can put it this way, that the electromagnetic field is to be thought of as an integral part of the M field, of the mind, of the soul of the world. That it just belongs yes, yes. in there, more in the mental part of the picture than the physical. Well, I think surely if we do have the idea of interfacing planes, if, if, if you were trying to take your metaphor of the levels, the old idea of different levels, with the planes being thought of as fields, in the physical universe, we do actually have a series of stratified levels. We've got the quantum matter fields, which are to do with the strong and the weak nuclear fo- forces in atoms. And the quantum matter fields are supposed to determine the shape, structure, properties of atoms and molecules. But once you get about, I mean, they only work over very short ranges. The electromagnetic field is what actually holds together atoms and uh, uh, molecules and crystals more than anything else. And the electromagnetic field becomes the kind of higher organizing field of more complex structures. Um, so one could say the electromagnetic field is the associated with or the medium of the morphic fields, if you like, of molecules and crystals. And then, it's, uh, then when you get to um, plants and vegetative growth, there's a morphic field of vegetative growth which interfaces with the electromagnetic field somehow as the lower level field sort of intervibrates with it. And then that can be included in animals within what Aristotle called the animal soul, which is the organizing principle of instincts and movements, which organizes and coordinates the activities of the nervous system. And then you can have hierarchically higher planes above that, more embracing fields, perceptual fields, fields of sort of higher level understanding, etc., which work down... So you have this plane of, of fields, uh, which are like the planes, but they're in a nested hierarchy. The, and then the gravitational field embraces all it's the uni- as the universal field. I got it. Novum organum. It's a new order of the universe, which there's more fields. If, well, the electromagnetic field, as a co- constituent component of the end field, the mind field, or the, wor- the world's soul, mm. should be utilized economically to carry as much of the burden of explanation as possible. And certainly all of these morphogenetic phenomena about crystals and so on are they're so intimately connected by resonance with the electromagnetic field that the EM field itself might be enough to explain this evolution of Terence. I think it's time to bring up dowsing. Well, you, you mentioned uh, evidence for this sort of thing, which is then ignored. I mean, dowsing passed through my mind. Uh, Pheromones is another possibility here. There are not only electromagnetic fields, but there are chemical 
fields. And I think that <coughs> pheromones are vastly underrated for their organizing power in biology and social systems. And that, in fact, the whole earth may be essentially chemically regulated through very small molecule organic uh, compounds that are uh, a byproduct of the metabolism of various species, but which percolate out through the environment and set up the field, the ambiance in which a lot of animal and plant business is done. I mean, to me, the vegetative mind and all this, there have to be mechanisms for all this influence. And I think probably uh, easily volatilized, low molecular weight uh, compounds are, are running a lot of this. It's even conceivable that Rupert's experiments on the looking at the back of people's heads would show that it worked in a room of this size, but that not but that the television transmissions would fail. And that would argue to me that it was, in fact, pheromonal. I mean, if, uh, if materialists can seriously argue that the crystallization phenomenon has to do with seed crystals moving around on chemists' beards, then they will certainly be in agreement that the percolation rates of nature uh, are effective enough to move these control and message-bearing chemicals around everywhere. Well, this idea, I think, is very supportive of uh, Rupert's economy move because the olfactory bulb is nothing but a transducer from the chemical field to the electromagnetic. For example, in Walter Freeman's model, just a small number of molecules of the scent, the pheromone, is enough to excite the, the identifiable morphology of electromagnetic wave across the bulb, mm -hmm. which is then identified by some kind of associative memory living primarily in the electromagnetic activity of the brain with, with um, whatever is the association for that scent. So there is a, a coupling that uh, kind of shows the electromagnetic field as an intermediary between the chemical field and the mental field. Which it obviously is, because uh, the chemical field is simply a higher order manifestation of the magnetic uh, of the electromagnetic field, because these uh, most of these volatile compounds uh, have uh, uh, very electronically active ring structures. And yes, it's a resonance phenomenon. Exactly, charge transfer and resonance and all of this stuff is happening. It is the most electronically active molecules that are the drugs, the pheromones, the growth regulators, and so forth. Yes, so here we've got sensors that respond in a kind of reson electromagnetic resonance to these things, which then could, by morphic resonance, bring into play a much larger field of memory and association, but the interfacing would be electromagnetic again. And in hearing, there's a, there's a, you see, if we follow through the, these lines, the, the smell isn't localized anywhere particularly. Our vision, when I see you, you are localized somewhere outside me where you are. If I hear you, the sound is also localized outside me. I don't hear sounds as if they're arising inside my auditory cortex. I hear them as if they're arising around me in three-dimensional space, and I can locate, in fact, which direction they're coming from. Mm -hmm. So um, this means that we must not only be surrounded by a kind of 
perceptual, visual perceptual field that spreads out from this and fills the space that, of our perception right out to the distant stars when we look at them. But we also are surrounded by an auditory perceptual field which is again located around us. And it means therefore that something must move out. The sounds come in and something must, as it were, move out from us in the opposite direction to the sound. Well, this perhaps militates against the photon argument because in this case it would have to be a kind of antiphonon that was moving and it would move at the velocity of sound, not the velocity of light, if it was the kind of shadow side of the sound wave that was used as the medium. And its undetectability is going to be troubling. Uh... Well, people may be able to tell when they're being listened to. I mean, you sometimes doubt it when you see some people talking, but there's uh, <laughs> <laughs> a simple experiment here. You, you have people talking, saying a, a message down a telephone, and at the other end, according to some random program, you have somebody listening to what they're saying or not listening, and you have to, um, they have to be able to tell you when they think they're being listened to. Um, that's a simple experiment. It can be done by anybody. And if it's done locally at local call rates, it would be very inexpensive, not true, requiring true. a large grant or anything. Well, with radio, too. Uh -huh. I just think it won't work. You look at the ocean and you see it's, it has infinite structure and complexity, and nevertheless, it could never function as a brain. I think that, uh, I mean, the brain is... Uh, in the neurophysiology it presents to the experimentalist, certainly much simpler than the mind. Mm -hmm. It's a poor shadow of a mind. And its structure is definitely richer. I mean, it cannot function through electromagnetic field alone, even though all of the effects are kind of manifesting the electromagnetic field. For example, a given thought might be a pattern where uh, electromagnetic fields in the extracellular space control um, clouds of calcium ion, for example, that we can think of them as clouds in the sky that are being pulled this way and that electromagnetically, and then if there's a large number of them adjacent to some empty receptors or something, well, this motion of the cation is through the electromagnetic field, but the electromagnetic field without some charges moving around can't really manage to do to control all these multi-dimensional patterns where you have the layered structure of cortices with pyramidal cells connecting and then you have solid bodies of stuff like glial cells that the actual materiality of it, the fine structure with the ion channels and this and that, and somehow that structure is much richer than the electromagnetic field. Just to think on the level of mathematical models, you have an excellent mathematical model I mean, not to identify these models with the field, but just to think of the, an idea of the a measure of the complexity of one of these fields as con currently conceived by us would be the complexity of the mathematical model currently in vogue. So we have Maxwell's model for the electromagnetic field. It's all described by uh, a tensor field, to a, bi a bivector. It has four indices. It takes this much complexity. A simple tensor field describes the <coughs> electromagnetic field in relationship in regard to an observer moving through at whatever velocity in the context of special and general relativity and so on. For the physical fields in the brain, the usual models are tensors that are much larger that take into account this physical structure, symmetries, the creation and destruction of symmetries moving around and so on. So the, the brain, as described by currently the better mathematical model, which is 
it'll get much more complex as time goes on, has, it requires much more mathematical structure to even discuss the thing or imitate its behavior than does the mathematical model for the electromagnetic field. And that brain is like much closer to the physical universe than to the mental. So I think the electromagnetic field is too thin to occupy more than a fraction of a fractal dimension of the entire structure of the field carrying recognition, memory, um, how to serve in tennis and learning a new language and recognizing haiku and, and, and all this. Yes, well, I'm, I mean, I am somewhat inclined to agree. I, but I think somehow it has to be play this kind of interface role between the, the chemical and the psychic or the, the, um, or the morphic realm. You know, if, if it has to interface with morphic fields somehow. Um, because one has to have these planes linked together. There's another question you see that arises, how does the electromagnetic field interface with the quantum matter fields of, of the electron? Because the electron and the nucleus, the nucleus, its structure, and the electrons in their orbit are held in those orbits by quantum matter fields, not by electromagnetic fields. In fact, being opposite charges, if it were just electromagnetic, electrons would plummet into the nucleus. So the structure is actually maintained by fields which, in a sense, are stronger than the electromagnetic field, which resist it and override it. And the electromagnetic field sort of works around those fields. Um, it's a more subtle field, um, but it works around them. So we've already got one model. I don't know how much attention people have paid to the interface of those two fields, but they are separate kinds of fields. And they interface because the electron and the, and the nucleus are electrically charged. But at the same time, their structure is made of quantum matter fields. Yes, well, if Nick Herbert were here, he'd say that it was the quantum matter field and not the electromagnetic field. Maybe he would say that was the intermediary between the physical and the mental planes. I guess I should have mentioned in the beginning of this podcast that, for the most part, today's program was a whole lot heavier on scientific jargon than I normally like. During the middle of their discussion, I wasn't sure if my brain was going to explode or if I was going to just nod off when their voices started getting lower and lower and lower. <laughs> I did my best to uh, boost the volume along the way, but there was only so much I could do in parts of it. That session uh, actually reminded me of a workshop of Terence McKenna's that I attended, and where during the uh, Saturday afternoon session, <laughs> a guy just flat went to sleep on the floor, and then he started snoring. And <laughs> you know, seeing the look on Terence's face when the snoring started was uh, worth the price of admission. <laughs> Old Terence was really cracking up about it. I think I mentioned this earlier about uh, getting an email from Steve, who lives in South Africa, and glad to have you guys down there joining us, by the way. And uh, he's planning on building a 2012 portal to help focus the various aspects of that date, and I got to wondering if any others of you out there are doing that too, and if so, I'd like to hear about it. I also heard from uh, Lauren about the idea of a new calendar, and one of the things that she has done is to create a daybook with illustrations she's created for uh, each of the 260 days in the Mayan Zolkin calendar. I'll try to remember to put a link to her site with the program notes for this podcast, but the URL is easy to remember. It's uh, www.dharmawakenings.com. That's D-H-A-R-M-A-W-A-K-E-N-I-N-G-S.com. Only one A in the middle there. 
Also, I, uh, I'd like to thank Adolfo for pointing out a typo I made, or maybe it was actually some kind of a dyslexian Freudian slip where I spelled trialogs, T-I-R-E logs, as if I was tired of these logs. And, uh, hey, I really do appreciate you guys pointing things like this out to me. And Adolfo also asked an important question about the term universal human that I used in my Beyond 2012 talk at the Oracle Gathering. What I did, not very elegantly I know, was to exchange the phrase homo divinus for universal human. And if you've been following my essays and talks about this topic over the past few years, you know that I've morphed my ideas from homo cyber to homo divinus and now to universal human. And I hope that clears it up a little. In case you missed it, uh, KMO's Sea Realm podcast number 11 featured an interview with the editor-in-chief of Foreign Policy magazine about his book, Illicit, How Smugglers, Traffickers, and Copycats Are Hijacking the Global Economy. I hadn't heard of this book before, and it really sounds interesting, so some of you may want to uh, also check out that program. There's a link to the Sea Realm on our podcast page, by the way, which you can find at matrixmasters.com slash podcasts. And uh, also in that podcast by KMO is the first part of an interview with Rick Doblin, the founder of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And in that interview, uh, Rick mentions a lawsuit in which his organization is suing the federal government for the right to grow its own cannabis for research studies that have already been approved by other branches of the government. And if that topic is of interest to you, then you may want to also check out podcast number 14 from right here in the Psychedelic Salon. I think that's the one that includes Rick's talk at the National Press Club the day that lawsuit was being heard. Before I go, I guess I should mention that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 license. Thanks again to Chateau Hayuk for the use of their music here in the Psychedelic Salon, and thank all of you who sent emails and messages through tribe.net. I do read everything that comes in, and I do my best to reply when I can. And uh, so, for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.